0: Good morning. Please turn with me into your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 to chapter 9, verses 5. But thanks be to God, who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is the gospel throughout all the churches. Not only that, but who also was chosen by the churches to travel with us with his gift which is administered but to us by which administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself, and to show your ready mind, avoiding this that any one should blame us, than this lavish gift which is and administered by us, providing honorable things not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but how much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you? If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about they, are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Now concerning this ministry to the saints, and is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness about which I boast to you, to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready for a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have seen, sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect. As I had said, you may be ready, lest son Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared. We, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this, confident boasting. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of forehand to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you have previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as grudging obligation.
1: Warning, we ask for God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word this morning, and I invite you to have your Bibles open to Second Corinthians chapter 9. This is the second lesson from Second Corinthians 8 and 9. If you missed last week's and, and are interested, I believe that last week's sermon will be on the church's website, podcast, and uh, if you want to listen to it and get both of them, then that's available. I was thinking this morning during the announcements and uh, just our time together, how in our life together as a congregation, there are moments that are joyful and uh, moments that are delightful. I think about the fellowship we enjoyed at, at the Eels, at their holiday open house, uh, some of our midshipmen are back this morning, and, and we miss them, and uh, we're glad they're here. Uh, we're glad to see them this morning. Um, some of us individually or some of us in smaller groups have things happen that um, that are a delight, that enrich and bless our time together, our life together, and, and uh, we have those things. But there is a saying that goes that every silver lining has a cloud, and... Uh, in the announcements this morning, we heard some of the cloud. That some of us have matters of great concern on our hearts, things that we're trying to deal with in our life that are really difficult. And certainly as a congregation, uh, we have some challenges and some concerns that, that we need to address. Maybe things are always that way. Maybe that's just life. But we know that the early church knew more of the cloud than the silver lining. And in particular, in the middle of the first century, the church faced a pair of crises. One of those crises was a crisis of unity. Jewish Christians were finding it very difficult to open the doors of fellowship to their Gentile brothers and sisters. And not only was that struggle going on within the church, but the church was being threatened with persecution. Everywhere the church could be found, its enemies were making life difficult. In particular, the church in Jerusalem was facing a difficulty because of poverty and hunger. There is a great, great need in the church in Jerusalem. Well, Paul is trying to address those two crises by calling on the Gentile church to come together to the aid of the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem with a special collection, a special gift of money to provide for food and other needs. And he hopes that when this gift is received, that Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians will be drawn together and that there will be greater unity. In explaining how this can happen or what will enable this to take place, Paul tells us that to accomplish it, What is really needed is the grace of God. And Paul bases his appeal to the Corinthians for this collection not on how much money they have and not on how terrible things might be in Jerusalem, but on the grace of God and how God's grace has already been at work among them. They've experienced God's saving grace in Corinth. As we learned last week in chapter 8, they have excelled in the grace gifts of, of faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness and love. In 8.1-15, Paul exhorts them to, to follow the example of the Macedonians who by grace first gave themselves to God and then, pleading for the opportunity to take part, made a generous contribution to the collection for Jerusalem. And we learn from chapter 8 that the measure of our giving is not the amount that we give, but the amount that we receive from God. Paul goes on to explain the provisions that he has made for handling this contribution, for taking it up, and that's what we heard in our reading. He completes this appeal in 9, 6 through 15, where we're going to study this morning. And he continues to take up a very real Concern, a very practical concern. Without a doubt, the Corinthians had children to feed and clothe and educate, had families to provide for, they had bills to pay, they had financial responsibilities. No doubt the church in Corinth had financial responsibilities that it had to deal with. And while they're certainly better off than the Christians in Macedonia and Jerusalem, the question is there, just what could they give? What could they afford to give? And to put that question in the way that Paul is approaching this subject, we need to ask just how far would they trust God's grace? Just how far could they trust His grace? And we find our answer to that question in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 9. But in verse 6 he writes, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Every man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. How far can we trust God's grace? How far out on the limb can we go? The limb of God's grace. We wrestle with that question. Maybe we've never heard anybody quite put it that way, but, but we still wrestle with that question at times. And I'm sure if we just started going around somebody, everyone would say, oh, we can trust God's grace completely. And I'm glad we can say that. And if that's really true about our life with Christ, then praise be to God. But some of us aren't sure, are we? Well, we're just not too sure God is going to forgive us. I'm not too sure if God's grace is going to cover our sin. And when it comes to our personal lives, our personal finances, and our obligation, and our own needs, just how far does God's grace extend? What can we count on? How far can we trust it? Will He provide for us? If we give generously, will God provide for us and our family? But Paul begins his answer with a proverb that he sets up first in verse 5 by referring to their gift twice as a generous gift. A generous gift in this context is not necessarily a large gift. It is the gift that is given freely, that is given gladly, a gift that is not given grudgingly. And Paul is confident that they will have their gift for Jerusalem ready in time. And as they complete their contribution, Paul wants them to remember a simple principle. And the principle is that if they sow sparingly, they will reap sparingly. If they give generously, they will reap generously. Because a great harvest depends on great sowing. A farmer cannot be stingy with what he plants and then expect to take in a great harvest. Likewise, if the Corinthians sow generously, their harvest will be great. A generous gift for Jerusalem will result in a great harvest. The Christians in Jerusalem will have food to eat and their other needs will be met. The whole church, Jew and Gentile alike, will be united And Corinth will be the recipient of God's blessings. And as Paul has said before and will say again, God will be glorified because they sow generously. Because they gave generously. So with that encouragement in mind, Paul sets out three guidelines to help them make decisions about their giving. First, he said, everyone should give what he has decided in his heart to give. There is a story about a preacher who filled in one Sunday. And as fill-in preachers tend to do, he rearranged the service, which is a nasty thing to do. And the thing that he did that got him in trouble is that he put the contribution after the sermon. And one older brother came up and really chewed him out for it. He says, you do that. I don't know if it was a front pocket sermon or a back pocket sermon. We're not supposed to make up our mind when the plates are being passed. Everyone should think about it. Should think about our relationship with God. Giving should come from prayer and careful thought about that relationship as well as consideration of our finances. It should be an expression of our love for God, our confidence, our trust, our faith in His grace. The second guideline is that our gifts should not be given reluctantly. If it hurts to give, if it's painful to let go of the money, re-examine your heart and the grace that God has given you. We shouldn't feel compelled to give. If we are giving with twisted arms and broken fingers, we are not giving as God wants us to give. Emotional appeals that manipulate us into giving violate God's desire for our giving. He wants us to give willingly. He wants us to give freely. And third, He wants us to give cheerfully. Our gifts should be given with joy. Because God loves it when we give with joy. But our question of how far can we trust God's grace hasn't been answered yet. And Paul answers it with a great promise, one of the great promises of the Bible. And the great promise is that God is able. God is able to make all grace abound in you. Or as another has put it so very well, God is able to multiply or increase in abundance, every grace to you. In Ephesians 2.7, Paul speaks of the incomparable riches of God's grace. And that is true about his saving grace and his grace gift of giving. God can graciously and lovingly give us a capacity to serve and to give to others, and he can give it to us until we overflow with it just as he did with the Macedonians according to 8, 1 through 5. But to what end? Why would God give us this abundance of grace? Why would he fill us to overflowing with this grace? Paul explains, so that in all things, at all times, having all we need, we can abound in Every good work. Do you notice how many times Paul uses the word all there? And the word every? God's ability, God's willingness to support us with his grace is without limits. Paul is saying the Macedonians were poor and persecuted, but they gave an abundant contribution to the collection. And they were able to do so because God's grace enabled them to do so. His grace gave birth to their willingness and their resources. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know that God is going to do the same thing for them. If it is in their heart to give to the saints in Jerusalem, if they're not reluctant to give but do so cheerfully, God is going to be there. And God will make it possible for them to give. He will graciously provide for them to do this great good. And if you and I set our hearts on giving, if we're giving willingly, if we're giving cheerfully, if we're giving to seek to please the Lord, to do His work, He will make it possible always for us to give. He will always make it possible for us to give in every good work. You see, the promise here is a promise of sufficiency. God will provide so that we in turn can provide. He will give the seed that we need for a great harvest. His gift of grace will enable us in turn to give our own gracious gifts. Paul's not saying that God is going to make us fabulously and independently wealthy, but he is saying that God will give us the resources that we need to do his work. Paul finds support for this in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 112, in verse 9, to say that God blesses those who give generously to those in need. And such acts of righteousness endure forever. God's grace enabled the Macedonians to give beyond their means. His grace will enable the Corinthians to give as they promised. And his grace will enable us to give in such a way as to support the work of the church. He gives seed to the sower and bread for food. And God will increase our resources and give us a great harvest. We live in God's grace. He saves us from our sins. He redeems us for himself. He gives us his spirit. He prepares a home for us in heaven. And our lives are in his hands. Every part of our life is in our hands. And he cares for us. And he provides for us. He blesses us. So Paul's encouragement is that when we plan our giving, we do so trusting that God will take care of us and that he will provide and that he will enable us so generously. Put the Lord to the test. Taste and see that the Lord is good. See how he multiplies the seed for a great harvest. See just how sufficient God's grace is. But giving in God's grace accomplishes something more important than its immediate ends. Look at verses 11 through 15. Paul continues, You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace that God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We might think that something is missing in this passage. In fact, we might read chapter 8 and 9 and think something is missing, especially in light of all of the appeals that we get from various charities. But have you noticed in these two chapters that there is not one picture here of starving Christians in Jerusalem? There's not one picture of the saints in Jerusalem starving or in need. Nor does Paul give one teary, heartstring-pulling letter from those needy brothers and sisters. In fact, as far as I can see, the most he says about Jerusalem is in verse 12 when he explains that the Corinthians' gift will supply Jerusalem's need. He doesn't elaborate on Jerusalem's need. It's kind of bland, isn't it? kind of an emotionless appeal. But Paul does appeal to something higher and more spiritual. He reminds the Corinthians again of God's promise. God will give to us so that we can give generously on every occasion. But there's more to it than that. When Paul delivers their generous and gracious gift, the church in Jerusalem is going to react to that gift. They will raise their voices in thanksgiving to God for His generous gift to them. They will recognize that God has not abandoned them in their hour of need, but through the grace and the love of their brothers and sisters, He has helped them. The Corinthians and the Macedonians and the others care about them and care about their needs. And more importantly, their giving turns people to God into a flood of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving will go up from the saints in Jerusalem for two reasons. First, in this gift, Jewish Christians will see evidence of the genuineness of the faith of Gentile Christians, and they will praise God because the Gentiles have truly become Christians. They have truly obeyed the gospel. And second, they will also praise God because their brethren have been so generous in sharing with them and with others. And the result is a divided church will be drawn together in unity. Jewish Christians will have a longing for their Gentile brethren and they will pray for them. All because of the surpassing grace that God has given the Macedonians and the Corinthians. And in response, God will be praised. Here's what is most important about their giving. They won't be giving because they're good old boys with soft touch, soft hearts. They will give because God's grace has touched them in every way, saving them and enabling them to give. Second, the Christians in Jerusalem will recognize that God is at work in the Corinthians. He is ultimately the one who is giving and caring and providing. He is simply doing this work through the Macedonians and through the Corinthians and the other Gentile congregations who help. And seeing God provide, they will praise and give thanks. On the back of your handout, there is a a graphic that illustrates the point that Paul is making. That God abundantly bestows his grace on the Corinthians. Saving grace, grace gifts, the grace of giving. And the Corinthians receive that grace and they're touched and moved by that grace. And so they serve the church in Jerusalem by sharing what they've received. They share their abundant grace with Jerusalem. Verse 15. And so when Jerusalem receives it, the result is that God is praised. God has given thanks. The lesson here is that while we give to support the Lord's work here, the real motive is that God has blessed us and enabled us to give. He has touched us and moved us to be gracious. And our giving is one way in which we can say thank you to him for all that he has done for us. And when we use the money that he has given us to teach the gospel or to teach our children or to feed the hungry or to help someone to do God's work, not only are those things accomplished, but our giving brings thanksgiving and praise and glory to God. As we use the money that is given to do God's work, All of the thank yous belong to God because he is behind it all. When we serve to say thank you to God and express our gratitude to him, and when those we help praise God and thank him, there isn't anything that we do that's more important. Nothing is as important in our lives as praising and glorifying God. And so Paul comes to the conclusion in verse 15. And he concludes by saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Or even better, grace be to God for his indescribable gift. God gives grace. The brethren give grace. The church gives grace to God. But what is the gift that Paul is referring to in verse 15? The gift of his son on the cross? The gift of his grace in saving us? The gift of providing for our needs so that we can help others. Yes, all of those things. All of those are expressions of his grace. And in response, we say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As I said at the end of last week's sermon, we hope that you will prayerfully consider your giving. And ask yourself some questions. Is your giving an expression of praise for the grace that you have received from God through Christ? Is your giving an expression of gratitude to God for his grace? Is your giving a declaration that everything you are and everything you have is a gift from God? When you give, are you giving with a willing and joyful heart? Is your giving a confession of your faith that you trust God To take care of you and yours. Is it proof? Is it demonstration. Of your unconditional trust in his grace. If your giving. Rises to those standards. We can be certain. That it will please God. And it will be sufficient. It will be sufficient for us as a congregation. To do the things that we need to do. But if it is not. The problem is not a financial one but a spiritual one. And we hope that you will turn prayerful attention to that in the new year. Thank you for your patience this morning and for listening to this lesson. I I really do appreciate it this morning, always. And ask that you pray about these things. I'm going to finish with a song of encouragement. There may be someone here this morning who needs prayers or needs to do God's will. And if you do, please come forward and let us know how we can serve you. Won't you come? while we stand and sing.